Welcome to Last One to the Party, the podcast where we take a look at classic films, TV shows, songs, albums, and even performers as seen through the eyes of someone who's completely missed that until just now. Thanks for joining us once again on Last One to the Party. On this episode, we're going to take a look at The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, directed by George Roy Hill. This is a particular favorite of mine. My memory says that this was the first grown-up movie I saw as a kid. I have a memory of my parents taking my sister and I to a theater in Daly City to go see this in the evening time, after dark, probably a 6.30 showing. And it was the first movie that wasn't uh, a live-action Disney movie or an animated Disney movie or something like that, and so it was very exciting. And the, the plot of the movie is filled with twists and turns, and it's got two really charismatic stars with Newman and Redford. And um, my friend Ben Bromfield posted on Facebook that he was watching some classic movies and name-checked this one. Now, ben Bromfield is a composer. Ben writes the music for Boss Baby for DreamWorks, airing on Netflix, and also for Where's Waldo. And he's scoring the music for an upcoming film called Ginny and George. Ben went to Berklee College of Music and studied film scoring there. I went to Berkeley College of Music many years before him, but studied jazz composition and arranging. Should have studied film scoring. Anyway, we talked to Ben about his first time ever viewing The Sting. He's got some good insights, especially from the perspective of a film composer, a small digression to Dirty Dancing, and Ben buries the lead. So once again, we're going to take a look at The Sting with musician-composer Ben Bromfield. So you finally saw The Sting. How aware were you of The Sting before watching it? How much did you know about the movie? How much did you know about everything around the actors in the movie, all of that stuff? So I, I would say I knew very, very little about it. I had <laughs> one, of the, one of the funniest, most random references I can think of to it before I saw it was um, this movie called Role Models which is a Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott movie. And um, there's a line in that movie. Um, People have told me I look like a young Marvin Hamlish. And he's like, I don't know who that is. And then Paul Rudd's like, he wrote the music for the movie The Sting. And, you know, I think that, I, I thought that was funny for a few reasons. First of all, as a film composer, and I think I probably would have been at Berkeley studying film scoring at the time, I knew who Marvin Hamlish was. And so, like, that probably stuck out to me. And I just thought it was really funny that because I'm also hyper aware of the fact that like composers are not really famous some people there's a couple famous film composers Hans Zimmer is like sort of a household name John Williams I just thought it was funny that like that's something that that character gets all the time (laughs) people not only do people know who Marvin Hamlish is but they know what he looks like as a young person well enough to point out that this, this kid looks like him so I remember that and there is a hilarious reference to it in The Simpsons that I think I was like loosely aware of, where they mostly just used the, again, Marvin Hamlish version of The Entertainer, which is very quintessential to this film. And they use it for like a montage of, of, of Homer regaling his horrible experience going to New York City in the episode. I think it's called <laughs> Homer versus New York City. And I'm like a, just a gigantic early Simpsons fan, first 10 years of The Simpsons, watch those episodes a million times when I was a kid and had like a episode guide for it that sometimes I think pointed out certain things like that and what they were referencing 
I knew very little about the actual film, just loose references to it in pop culture. And mostly to Marvin Hamlish. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. There's no way that anybody would know this today, but on like daytime talk shows like Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin, they would have Marvin Hamlish on. He became a bit of a celebrity, sort of ce celebrity flavor of the month for a little while, and he would pop up on these things. And The Entertainer was like a top 20 hit for a couple of months the year really? that this came out. Yeah, wow. it was on the, ch I mean, it was just remarkable. The one thing I wanted to specifically ask you about before we get too into the movie itself was, what did you think about that choice of using ragtime for this movie? I thought it was so interesting. It really lends a certain jolliness to the entire experience. <laughs> like it's pretty much the jauntiest piece of music ever, <laughs> at least in pop culture. I don't know. There, there are some pretty dire circumstances in this film. I think all of the music is either directly from his orchestration of The Entertainer or like he might have written some similar pieces to it. I thought I heard some some other cues that were just very similar style that he probably wrote, but I couldn't find them online just now when I was searching. It really goes to show how much music can change a film because it'd be a completely different experience without that. I think it would still be light, but it wouldn't be as light. I don't know, it adds like a, a certain amount of fun to the entire experience and, and levity to it that I'm not sure any other piece of music or style of music could do that. Ragtime is so specific. Later, when I got older and became much more of a jazz snob while, while I was at music school in Boston, I realized that the music that would be appropriate to the period, which is 1936, would be like early Basie band. Duke Ellington. Early swing stuff. I didn't even think about that, but that's interesting. Because Ragtime is from like the teens. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's 20 years prior to when that, mu that movie takes place. And so it's a real anachronism, that, yeah. but you're right, it fits it kind of let it kind of reassures you that everything's gonna be all right. It's also like <laughs> it's not cool. No element of cool to it, at least you know by any standards of either the seventies or today. Or there's definitely an element like it's still jazz. Like jazz, there's a coolness to jazz that is not in ragtime. <laughs> So now delving into the movie, and, and we're going to alert listeners that there are spoilers in this. So if you're interested in seeing The Sting, you should pause this and go see The Sting because there's certain reveals and plot twists that are, I, I think, especially fun if you have no idea that they're coming. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll just freely talk about the movie, but anybody listening should know like, hey, if you're interested, pause now and come back. We'll be here. You know, as you're diving into this movie, what are your impressions of the movie of the actors of all of that that aspect of it uh robert redford uh looks a lot like brad pitt <laughs> that's one thing i thought and i feel like when you when, when you reverse that reverse engineer that you look at brad pitt in once upon a time in hollywood it's like oh my god he is just transformed into robert redford there's a swagger to that um a lot yeah i don't know i mean he, he's, he's a great leading man um i felt like uh the whole beginning of the movie was just fun set it up that first little heist that they do 
I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I didn't have a lot of strong reactions to the cast until uh, Paul Newman showed up because he's just cool. And he's also kind of older than I expected him to be in this film. Like this is kind of later Paul Newman or I don't know. I mean, how, how late did he really go? Yeah, he's probably in his, definitely in his 40s at that point, I think. Okay. Maybe early, early 50s, but somewhere in there. There was also hype about it because it was the repairing of Newman and Redford together again after doing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Okay, yeah. Describe for me how, like, in watching the movie and following the, the plot of it, how, how drawn in did you get? How much did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Well, I think that it is all, I mean, it, con artist movies are, there's a certain fun to them just inherently, and it's always fun to watch them sort of prank someone who's a douche, like in the very beginning. Um, so I think that draws you in. And it also, um, I, I really like the show Better Call Saul. And there's like a, a episode where, where they do a bunch of that stuff. It's fun to sort of decipher the con as an audience member. Um, right after it happened, uh, after it gets revealed that how many steps ahead the con artist is, you know, and this just, this is basically just setting up the plot. It's various layers of deception to the point where they get this guy to run away from them after giving them money and jump in a cab and as quickly as he can. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's just, that's just fun. Um, but it, it did remind me though, like on, on the issue of of race like I think that that did stand out to me a little bit like it's just it's interesting because of like the where you know Hollywood is right now with diverse casting and stuff like that um, and, and trying to not typecast people like it is like this black family of con artists you know um, and they're but they're like hardy and we, we love them and they're also like um, the, the sort of wiser elements but uh but yeah like I do sometimes think about that sort of thing and like in a movie that's a period piece like this taking place in the 30s I do always find myself thinking about that and like uh, the way that the cops say would interact with this family and then uh, getting into the movie I feel like once Luther dies it's probably effectively drew me in more and then the reveal of uh paul newman but once i got to the train i think i started liking it a lot introducing the sort of villain character uh lonigan i believe is a, is the name yeah that was, that was cool i think by then i was i was really into it by the poker game thing because that that whole poker scene is like pretty um i don't know it's tricky there's so many nice fine touches in in the movie throughout where even before the poker game when they're kind of re-grooming Robert Redford's character and it's that montage and then they start to give him a manicure and he pulls away and they pull him back that's like straight out of a silent film that mm. sort of that that rhythm of that comedy such like comedically precise things written in and then they're executed really well mm -hmm. Redford does a thing he's running from somebody and the way he sort of slides on one foot to turn a corner is like Chaplin-esque it's essentially scored like a silent film I wonder if that played into it I was I was just uh, reading a thing that said that it was Marvin Hamlish's idea to use uh use the entertainer and stuff like that so that's not usually the type of direction that comes from usually more about executing the other person the director's vision but it's, it's a collaboration so it always it changes um, but that, that's really interesting about the silent film thing um, and if I wasn't really thinking of it like that but uh, after that scene the way he sort of embeds himself in the Lonigan crew that was interesting reminded me of something I mean he's basically just doing like a double agent thing but first they had to create this character of Shaw 
hated by the other guy, by Lonigan, so he could be a fake double agent about this fake uh, a hustler guy. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Because there's a couple of reveals in there. Like when they find out that there's a hitman, a hit person coming to take out Redford, and we think we know who it is, and he's running, and then and then you yeah. find out. I don't think I was a, I, would, I don't think I was ahead of any of it. It was just cool because, like, with a movie like this, that's a classic. It's inspired all of these other movies that I have seen, probably in the same genre. I don't know. I, I guess I wasn't trying to be ahead of it. I feel like I've seen similar stuff like this, but it's also because it's from a different era, and I don't want to watch a lot of movies from the '70s. It makes me less comfortable guessing at tropes and stuff like that in my head while I'm watching it. Having seen the things that were inspired by this and maybe happen at a quicker pace than this, did this feel slow or was it perhaps directed and written well enough that you were just engaged by it? I don't think it felt slow, but it certainly was. I mean, you think about probably the quintessential movie that this inspired is the modern Ocean's Eleven. That, if that's like the quintessential movie that this inspired, that is like one of the quickest paced movies I've ever seen and so it is really like night and day when you think about it there definitely is something I noticed and now that I'm, I'm sort of just now getting into watching old movies or like just at this point in my life the pacing is probably the most stark thing stark difference it's just they are paced so much slower this one I don't think it ever really lost me because other than a few scenes like right when he meets Gondorf it basically is all moving towards something like very much feels like it's moving toward somewhere, even if it is like slowing down for a minute, it's still all part of the con. So uh, yeah, I don't think it ever lost me. As the movie progresses and they move forward and they're going on with the con and you get to that final stage, that final bit of it, you know, like they take you on a full circle with the double and triple cross that happened. Total roller coaster. Um, it was a lot of fun. I was not expecting it. I, I don't know why I wasn't expecting it in the end. <laughs> like, of course, he's not going to turn like turn in his friend, squeal on his friend or whatever. But I don't know. I mean, I guess I was just going with it. Like I said, I wasn't really making a lot of assumptions because I don't watch yeah. a lot of movies from this era. I think I was surprised that all of the shooting happened and all of that. I do like how the one asshole cop from the whole movie is the only person who's not in on it. <laughs> the whole point of it being, because Lonigan is like, they want him to ditch his money. They're, they have to make it seem like it's, it's worth $500,000 because the consequences would be him getting caught up in this thing. But you know what, it, it also made me think of like historically, this type of thing always makes me think about how e much easier it would have been to get away with various things you know, in this time period. Back then, let's see, it was it was like during the Depression, I guess. This cop is dirty. There are no, not everybody has access to phones whenever they want. Like, you know, if you don't see somebody in, there are photographs, but there's no television. And so it's like, if you have enough people who look serious enough, yeah, you could probably co convince the corrupt cop that you're all FBI agents. <laughs> and then get away with it because no yeah. one has any sort of, again, there's no TV, there's no nothing. And also you could go from Chicago to St. Louis and nobody would know you all of a sudden, or let alone go farther to like go to Denver, all the way out to Los Angeles. Like you'd be home free. Yeah, it would, they would true. not it's be able like to going, track you down. It's like going to a remote islands. 
running away or you know you, you can hardly do it seems like you can hardly do that anywhere this it, it with the way the world is now like you can't hide it'd be so hard just the sheer fact that this guy can have people looking for him all over town and just i don't know void them i guess just don't go home i don't even know where does he stay does he stay with gondor gondor yeah he stays with him in chicago in that merry-go-round yeah, that he runs what's that that was like a brothel amusement park yeah, I guess it was a upstairs, right? There was a brothel upstairs, probably one of those things where the, the merry-go-round was just the front for the brothel. I guess so. It wasn't like the kids take their, <laughs> the parents take their <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Upstairs. Kids, you ride the thing, I'll be upstairs. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I hope not. Had anybody been mentioning this movie to you over the course of your life? Like, had your parents talked about it ever? Had any older relatives or anybody said, oh, the sting, and you, you never had any exposure to it, you were saying? No, not really. Um, I just sort of knew about it and knew that it was a classic and knew that it was like generally fun. Now that we're in uh, lockdown here, start, I'm trying to catch up on some, some older movies. And um, so my girlfriend's brother has a gazillion movies on something called Plex. He's like, a, he's like the last person collecting DVDs in the world. <laughs> and he's putting them all on, on his Plex. He's got like literally 500 or more movies which is great because we just like have access and uh and we were just like searching through them and i saw that one there and i was like ah we uh you know i should probably see that so i'm trying to make my way through and this is funny because i know that we're doing this because i uh i mentioned i made a list of movies i've seen i I forgot to put casablanca on that list of movies that i've seen recently (laughs) that i had never seen as if that was insignificant when it's the one of the most classic uh movies ever that i also just saw so we can do a another episode about that yeah you you really buried the like the lead (laughs) on not include Casablanca and it's funny because this part of the the inspiration for for doing this is this sense of how a thing is deemed a classic but yet can still sort of fade from public awareness and I feel like I could be completely mistaken but I feel like Casablanca is one of those that hangs in there and, and sort of looms large as like a classic movie even though it's from 1942 it's you know yeah 70 well, some year 78 years old a 78 year old movie yeah. is still capable of holding someone's attention I, it's just remarkable yeah no it really is and and i think a, a big reason why i haven't seen a lot of these movies is because i used to be kind of averse to just black and white um for whatever reason and i think it actually had more to do with the pacing than with the color or lack thereof um that the, like i just couldn't get in the pacing i think the first one that really that i really really enjoyed was 12 angry men like, wow that is a really good movie yeah i mean it transcends all of this stuff when something is just really well constructed and interesting and draws you in it is it is kind of remarkable but it took some coaxing i think for me to just give these movies the time that they need because it's a it, they just they just require more attention than modern day films this is just one era i've actually been going back and watching a lot of 80s movies too because i was born in 1987 Uh, my girlfriend was born in 1980 so she grew up with them and i and i just like never maybe i've heard of them maybe i haven't but yeah i mean we're just watching a lot of her childhood movies most of my childhood movies she saw have seen we did just watch uh dirty dancing for my sake my main takeaway from that was other than like wow this is a good movie so I didn't know, originally, I didn't know the movie was set in the 60s. The song at the end makes zero sense. 
the, when that song plays at the end of a movie that it, as source music in the scene in the 60s and I'm listening to it and I cannot divorce myself from my musical ears, my music producer ears and just be like, this 80s song playing in the 60s makes no fucking sense. Yeah. And it's almost it's almost like a, like Bollywood or something where like they just have a dance number at the end. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's been fun to go back and watch a lot of these movies, and um, and the Sting really just kind of snuck up on it. Casablanca is one that that I've been meaning to get to, and again, like just, I have to bring up The Simpsons again because as a '90s kid, the writing on that show it drew in so many elements from them, and also now I, I'm we're actually friends with the director of The Simpsons, this guy uh, uh, Mark Kirkland, who has directed, I think, more episodes than anyone else. I think he's got something like 81, 82 episodes. You know, we've become, become friendly with him over the years living in, in Los Angeles. And the level of detail, the way that he talks about having directed some of these scenes for The Simpsons that are parodies of these films is just the, the attention to detail of recreating the shots with The Simpsons animation is really interesting. There's a great thing. And also, after I watch these movies, I usually have to go back and watch watch the Simpsons thing like I recently watched The Shining this past Halloween I was completely transfixed by it it was like it was funny it was like we were at like a like a Halloween party thing and somebody had a projector and they were playing it and the party's happening and I'm just transfixed on this movie because it's like a perfect movie um, and then we went home I had to watch The Shining and same thing with with Casablanca like there, there's this hilarious bit in one of the episodes where they show the, the fake alternate ending for Casablanca um, and that is one thing that my girlfriend has not seen so i can show her that i can show her the simpsons parody and it's like oh this is this is this was my reference uh for for that thing that we just watched the thing for us was mad magazine mad magazine did a movie parody every issue and so mm. i kind of remember the mad magazine parody of the sting almost equally as well as the movie itself this never occurred to me before but the simpsons sort of picked up the mantle yeah. socially of what Mag Mad Magazine used to do for that yeah. age group. I wouldn't be surprised if they were very upfront about that too, because all those guys who did that are all, you know, they all probably grew up with the same thing. Like it's, it's mostly, I would think folks, you know, I think, I think the show in the nineties when it was so great, like those guys are in their twenties. In that episode that you referenced earlier, Homer versus New York, Bart visits the Mad Magazine offices. I, I was just thinking about that. You've referred to this as a classic. Have people, friends your age or your girlfriend's age, they've all seen this or have they not seen this by and large? Ever since I did the Facebook post a few days ago where I was just mentioning some of my favorite movies I've seen during lockdown, there have been a number of people mentioning The Sting. The Sting has gotten the most love of the of all the movies I listed. It's also probably the best movie. <laughs> it's list. also just fun. I think yeah. I think it's well made. I think it's well written. I think yeah. the 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 sting of it, the 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 hustle that they do is really well crafted. And I think on top of that, it's just two really charming lead actors. And then you've got all these great character actors who who were in a bunch of stuff in the seventies. Eileen Brennan as Gondorf's girlfriend she's great she's been in a hundred things and she's fantastic in everything she does charles durning is fantastic in everything he does it's a solid foundation underneath these two stars in a really really fun movie i think there is also a deep love for heist movies of, among people my age because of oceans 11 um, and i'm sure there's some other great ones that come to mind but i mean that that does kind of set the stage you know retroactively for something like this because the heist itself is great and the sting or the sting rather 
in the movie is great. And, it, and regardless of all the things we've talked about with like the pacing and like the different politics of the time the movie was made or just like the, uh, or the culture of the time the movie was made or the culture of the time the movie is set, all these things that are, are unique to it. Um, at the core of it is like this sense of like heistiness and layers on top of layers and characters, cool characters being many steps ahead of the less cool, like uh, of the uncool villain or the, the guy that you don't like. It's just great fun. That level of fun in this kind of movie, I think is really just, uh, it stayed consistent. Um, and, and this is probably, I don't know. I mean, I can't really think of an earlier film in this genre that really nails it. I don't know. Again, I'm not. I'm not like super up on a lot of old old classics. But yeah, I mean, like I I really feel like this kind of set the stage for a genre that's very much beloved by all. Thanks again to Ben Bromfield for joining us on this episode of Last One to the Party. You can find Ben online on Twitter at bbromfieldmusic. You can also check out his website where he has all of his credits and samples up, and that's benbromfieldmusic.com. So thanks once again to Ben for sharing all of that knowledge and insight uh, with us this, this particular episode. Ben has another special project that he's been working on that just came out pretty recently, and I'm going to let him explain that now. I was part of a group, if there are any, any people who saw, we talked about, um, I do score for a lot of TV shows. I also just released is a music, custom music kit for the game Counter-Strike Global Offensive that I wrote on with a bunch of other composers that came out, um, I think in mid-April and has been doing pretty well as far as I can tell. So if you're a player of that game, you want to hear some different soundtrack options for the game. You can hear some some stuff I did with my old uh, my bus and mentor Tree Adams. We collaborated on the music kit and uh, picked that up on the Steam store. So you can find me on there and you can find me on Twitter. And that's pretty much it. You can find Last One to the Party online at Twitter by searching Last One to the Party. You can find us on Instagram at last.one.two.the.party.podcast. Easy. If you'd like to, you can reach out and send us an email at lastonetothepartypodcast at gmail.com. This show was produced and edited by me, James Eason. Intro music also composed by me, James Eason. Thank you once again for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next time.